Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing breathing mindfulness meditation and we're going to be doing a meditation session together. So I'm glad you're here and you've decided to join us for our practice session where we're either going to be discussing and doing breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or chanting, which are three sessions that we rotate each Wednesday. And then on Sunday, we do a Dhamma talk based on the individual chapters of this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. So today is our meditation practice day. And I'll probably share a little bit of information here for those of you that are maybe joining us for the first time or you haven't really gotten a meditation session quite established yet. But then I'm going to pretty much use our time to open up the floor for any questions that you guys have in your meditation practice because meditation is really the foundation for this practice of training the mind which Gautama Buddha gave us and it's really important that as you're meditating and as you're building up this practice that you have the opportunity to receive guidance or ask questions based on things that you're experiencing in your meditation practice. So that's where I come in is that I'm able to offer you guidance and suggestions and encouragement, but mainly those questions and how your practice is evolving is really independent practice. It's your practice. So you kind of being in the habit of seeking guidance when you need it is really helpful. So let's get started with just kind of sharing some basic things about breathing mindfulness meditation, and then I'll open the floor. And I won't be kind of going into too much detail today because on Sunday we're going to be in chapter 11 of the book Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana. Chapter 11 is meditation, developing your practice. And in that chapter, I go through extensive amount of detail about all the various postures of meditation, all the different types of meditation, how to start meditation, how to end meditation, things to be considering while you're actually meditating. So on Sunday, we're going to go into a lot of depth about meditation and not only breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, but we're even going to explore two other meditations that I haven't really talked about in this program, which are meditations around sexual cravings and meditation around non-self. So we're going to be really diving in deeply on Sunday. So I was figured we'd use this session today more for actually practicing meditation and any questions that you guys might have either before we actually meditate or after we meditate, we'll have some time for questions as well. 
So just to get started, let me just kind of remind you guys what breathing mindfulness meditation is and what we're actually doing, why we're doing it. The primary problem that the Buddha discovered about the mind is that the mind has craving or it's also described as greed or essentially attachment, desire, clinging, uh, grasping. This is the mind's tendency to have this longing or this strong eagerness that it holds on to things. It craves for things to be permanent. The mind doesn't like impermanence, but the true nature of the world is that everything is impermanent except Nibbana itself or enlightenment itself. It's the only thing that's really permanent. Or one of the jokes is the only thing that's permanent is impermanence, right? Um, the only thing that's permanent is gamma or these natural laws that the Buddha taught. So the mind has this tendency for craving permanence and wanting things to be permanent. This is why we have sadness or anger or frustration when a relationship breaks up because the mind craves for it to be permanent. This is why we have sadness or frustration or anger or disappointment when somebody dies because the mind craves permanence. It wants things to be permanent. This is the reason why when people initially got quarantined and they were told they can't go to work and they can't go outside, the mind craved that permanence of that normal regular schedule of going out to work and going to the park and having what the mind felt was normal, that permanence of life, it craved that. And that's why when people went inside, they became bored or lonely or sad or frustrated or angry. This is the mind craving permanence. This is the central problem that the Buddha discovered and he talked about in his very first discourse, the Four Noble Truths. And it's because of this craving, this longing, this this wanting, this strong eagerness, these expectations, this craving, desire, holding, grasping, that we actually cause our own discontent mind. And because the mind has this tendency to want to hold on, it's going to cause itself to be discontent. Because if it's used to this normal habit of going outside all the time and going to work and seeing friends and going to our favorite restaurants, when all of that changes and shifts and we're quarantined, now the mind has that longing to go out to the restaurants or see friends or see family. And because of that, the mind is causing itself to be discontent. This is why it becomes sad or lonely or frustrated or bored. Or likewise, if we have a partner or a loved one who either the relationship ends or somebody dies, the mind is craving permanence and wants this relationship and this person to be with us permanently. And when it's not, the mind becomes sad or disappointed or frustrated or angry. So this is why you can understand that the Buddhist teachings aren't necessarily about what's right or wrong, but more about why is your mind discontent and how do we eliminate that, right? He's explaining in his teachings of why the mind experiences this discontentedness, this sadness, this frustration, anger, irritation, annoyance, guilt, 
shame, fears, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, all of these emotions, all of these feelings. And what his teachings do is provide you training of how to eliminate that. But the first step in that is realizing that our mind is what's causing this frustration. It's our mind, it's this craving, it's this desire, it's this attachment, it's this grasping, this holding, this longing, this strong eagerness, wanting things to be our way, expecting things to be our way. And the mind just holds on and holds on and holds on. So we are essentially causing our own discontent mind. And the more that you see that, the more you understand that, you'll be practicing closer and closer to right view. And this is part of the Four Noble Truths. And this, that's essentially the second Noble Truth that I just described to you. The third Noble Truth is essentially the way to eliminate this discontent mind is to eliminate the cravings, eliminate this desire, this attachments, this grasping, this holding, this longing, this strong eagerness for wanting things, expecting things, craving permanence, the mind holding on to things as much as it does. So by eliminating that and allowing the mind to get comfortable with impermanence and learning and training the mind to let go, we're essentially eliminating the attachments, eliminating the craving. And we're doing that through training the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity because generosity is sharing and kind of letting things go, sharing our time, our effort, our resources, our energy, sharing with people. And by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity, we're training the mind to let go and reduce and ultimately eliminate this craving because craving is just so detrimental to the mind's contentedness. Enlightenment is a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. And the only way to attain that is through eliminating craving. And a lot of the other things that we talk about in the Buddhist teachings and practicing a lot of his other teachings, but the primary goal in the Buddhist teachings is to eliminate craving because that's the primary problem that he discovered. And it's important that you understand when we talk about craving here, we're not just talking about like, oh, I would like to eat a piece of chocolate or I would like to eat some French fries, right? We're not talking about that. that that's kind of like, oh, I have an interest in eating French fries. But if I went to the restaurant and they were out of French fries and now I get angry or frustrated or irritated because they're out of French fries, now I know that I'm attached to the French fries. That's what the type of craving we're talking about. That's the desire. That's the longing with the strong eagerness. So just being interested to eat French fries, that's not a craving. But now if I don't have the French fries, is the mind peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy? And if it can be without the French fries or with the French fries, then we know that that's not a craving. Right, So it's important to understand the type of craving that we're talking about here is this strong eagerness, this longing, this tendency for the mind to hold on. So in breathing mindfulness meditation, what we're doing is we're training the mind that as thoughts of the past come into the mind, we let those go. 
and as thoughts of the future come into the mind, we let those go. As certain ideas and perceptions and thoughts come into the mind, we let those go. And by doing this over multiple sessions and training the mind in this way to let things go, when certain things happen in our life, then it's easy to let it go. So if we're walking down the street and somebody bumps into us, we just let it go. Okay, it just ran into us. Or somebody accidentally steps on our shoe, or if somebody talks harshly or hostile to us, we just let it go. Because the mind's been trained over multiple, multiple, multiple sessions to just let it go. Or if we have a certain job that we are particularly fond of and we lose our job, rather than being sad or angry or frustrated, we learn to just let it go. Okay, that's just where I'm at. That's in the past. I've been laid off from my job. Now I need to focus on my safety and my security and getting a job so that I can have an income. So allowing the past to be in the past, not being attached to the future, as thoughts and ideas come into the mind, through meditation, we're just letting it go and we're training the mind to just focus on the breath, which is the present moment. And by doing this over multiple, multiple, multiple sessions, we're essentially training the mind to be comfortable with impermanence. We're training the mind to recognize that everything's impermanent. All these thoughts that we're having are impermanent. If our body has a little itch, it's impermanent. If somebody talks harshly or hostile to us, it's impermanent. Um, the problem becomes when these things happen, the mind latches onto it and holds onto it, and then it becomes discontent. So the person who talks harshly to us, it affects the self-image, it affects the ego. We kind of hold on to it. We kind of feel like somehow this person's disrespected us and we have to stand up for our, our image and we have to stand up for who we are. And that can evolve into more and more problems in our life and difficult situations. So by training the mind to let go when these various things happen to us, doesn't mean we agree with the person who's being hostile to us, but we realize that that's a temporary situation. We realize that that's that person being hostile and we just don't allow it to bother our mind. But this takes training and it takes, takes effort. Same thing that if we lose a job, we don't allow it to affect our self-image or our ego. We don't try to latch onto it and hold it. If we have this longing or this strong eagerness for this job we had in the past, then the mind's gonna be discontent. Or if we're uncomfortable with being unemployed and we have this longing or this strong eagerness to get a job, and now we just start throwing resumes out, we just haphazardly go through interviews, we don't really focus our time and our effort to really do a good job preparing our resume, sending it to really good qualified jobs. When we're doing phone interviews or interviews in person, we're not taking our time to be very centered, very calm, very knowledgeable in the interviews. We're just craving to get some job back and some income back. And by grasping in that way, we don't have as good of results as if we just allow the mind to be calm, peaceful, content in the present moment and just realize, okay, I don't have a job right now and I need to work to improve this and let me make some good quality decisions to get me back into a situation where I have employment. 
But if the mind, again, if it craves this past job, has this longing, this eagerness for the past job, or it has this longing or this craving, this desire for this future job, then the mind isn't content and therefore it's not going to make as good a decisions if it just stays in the present moment and just makes good quality decisions in the present moment. So this meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation will help train the mind to be rooted in the present moment so it can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And what you'll notice is you'll be able to make better and better decisions in your life, which will lead to better and better outcomes. And again, it just takes some time. So before I get into actual instruction of meditation, I just thought I would pause here and see if anybody has any questions on why the mind is discontent, any questions around craving, any questions on why we're actually meditating to actually eliminate this craving and train the mind not to have this, or any questions on breathing mindfulness meditation, why it's beneficial, anything from your meditation practice, if you're currently meditating, or you're struggling trying to, to build a practice, or things that you're noticing that are coming up in your meditation practice, I'd like you to have the opportunity to ask some questions now before we go further into our talk. I have a question, David. So I recently heard a, a monk on YouTube say that it's not really possible to enjoy something without becoming addicted. And it seems there's a lot of misunderstanding around what the Buddha actually meant by attachment. But I'd appreciate your view on that. And mm -hmm. where do we draw the line between enjoyment and addiction or mm -hmm. attachment? Yeah, good question. So just starting off with a basic definition of attachment or craving or desire, it's a longing, the strong eagerness, the mind's tendency to hold on to it. So I disagree with what the monk said because I think there's plenty of things that you can enjoy in life and life becomes actually more enjoyable when you don't have craving or addiction. So let's give an example, a real life example. So I live here in the house with my mom. I'm sorry, my, my wife, I call her mom. <laughs> it's, a, it's a Thai thing that you call your, your wife mom to teach your, your children to call her mom, right? So I live here with my wife and I live here with my son. So if I have craving or attachment and say me and my son, we go outside, we go to a football field, a soccer field, and we're playing football. And let's say we're playing, we're playing, we've been playing for 30 minutes or so. And then let's just say now it starts to rain a little bit. Okay. If I'm attached, if I'm craving, when I'm playing soccer or football and it starts raining and it's over because it's raining, now the mind's going to be sad. It's going to be disappointed. It's going to be frustrated because it has this mental longing, this strong eagerness to play football. And now when we leave, it's like, oh, gosh, it rained. I wish it wouldn't have rained. We were only playing for like 15, 20 minutes. And we were expecting to play for an hour or two. And oh, man, it's raining. It's raining. Right. So the mind becomes discontent. That's an attachment. But we can play football and we can enjoy the field and we can enjoy the time together. And it can be an enjoyable experience. And then 15, 20 minutes later, when it starts raining, it's like, oh, it's raining. Okay, let's go. 
we should get going. And the mind can still be calm and content and just realize that it's impermanent. That if we hold on to this expectation that we're going to be here for an hour or two and we're craving the enjoyment, if we're longing for this enjoyment and then something changes where we're unable to play, whether it's the rain or let's just say a professional team shows up and they need to use the field or something like this. If the mind has this craving and this strong eagerness, then it's going to be discontent because it wants this, it expects this, it's holding on, it has this longing. But if the mind just recognizes, oh, it's impermanence, okay, I didn't realize this was a field for professionals and I didn't realize that they practice here, so let's go, let's go do something else. Then the mind can be content, but during that experience for that 15, 20 minutes, yeah, we enjoyed playing soccer, but it's a matter of like, okay, well, what do we do when this is over? Do we allow the mind to become discontent or do we not? So you can absolutely enjoy things, but the problem becomes when the mind holds on and it clings and it has this longing or this strong eagerness. Another example might be, say like you live in UK and say you have a friend that comes and stays with you and you're really looking forward to it and then they come and they stay with you and then they leave after two weeks and you guys had this really enjoyable time together for two weeks. Well, when they go back home, if the mind is longing and has this strong eagerness, when they leave, the mind's going to be sad and it might be frustrated. It might be lonely. It might be bored because the mind got hooked to this enjoyable experience for two weeks that you were together. And now when they leave, the mind becomes sad, disappointed, lonely or bored. But during the time that you're spending together for those two weeks, if the mind recognizes, okay, this enjoyment that I'm having, it's impermanent. I can't hold on to it forever. It's going to be over. And when it is, I just need to be just as peaceful, calm and content as I am any other time. The problem becomes when people try to hold on to that enjoyment those pleasant feelings, right? Because the discontent mind is painful feelings, pleasant feelings, and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So what happens is people crave and desire and have attachment to those pleasant feelings, that enjoyment, and that's the attachment. But I would say that if you eliminate that, and you just enjoy the two weeks that you're with your friend, and then when they leave, okay, you're off to other things, that's actually more enjoyable than actually having this attachment. Because if you have this attachment, this craving, that's ultimately going to end in either sadness, frustration, irritation, boredom, loneliness, you know, some type of discontentedness. So having attachment is always going to lead to a discontent mind. And this is where if you see this very clearly, you'll start realizing every time the mind gets attached, it always ends up discontent, always. Whenever there's attachment, there's going to be discontentedness. And this is where when you see this more and more and more, you'll train the mind to never allow it to get attached, to never allow the mind to have this craving because you know it's always gonna end in discontentedness. So you can absolutely enjoy things and you'll actually enjoy things more. This is why the peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy, it becomes so joyful 
because the joy is not based on any conditions. Now in the unenlightened mind, the unenlightened mind becomes joyful when my friend calls up and says, hey, I would like to come see you. Oh, I get excited because my friend's coming. And then when they come and they show up, oh, I feel so good. I feel so wonderful. My friend's here. Oh, they're going to stay with me for two weeks. I have someone to talk to, someone to go shopping with. Oh, it's so joyful. But then when they're gone, oh, I don't feel good anymore because that happiness, that enjoyment was based on a condition of this person coming to see me where an enlightened mind is going to be joyful all the time without condition. It can be joyful when the friend's there, but it can be joyful when the friend's not there. The mind can be joyful when we're playing football, but the mind can be joyful driving down the street and looking at the trees as well. So the joy that comes with the enlightened mind, it's without condition. So the enlightened mind has removed all of these conditions that these temporary feelings are based on and by removing all of those conditions impermanence is still happening but the mind can be peaceful calm serene and content with joy without any conditions it doesn't need anything to maintain that mental state got it thanks david so if i might just ask a follow-up then how would we then go about say pursuing enjoyment is there a case ever to to go out and get enjoyment because I, I mean i know people who seem to enjoy their lives a lot but seem to be also quite good at letting things go mm-hmm. but they still drink alcohol they still drink coffee should we just skillfully work in the moment to enjoy what happens to, to come up what happens to be skillful or is there ever a case for actively pursuing enjoyment mm-hmm. without attachment Okay, so the first one is a good practice of as things come up and they happen, enjoy it, and then when it's gone, it's gone. What the Buddha talked about, one of the the core problems, right? So the primary problem is this craving. But what he talked about there is he talked about human beings, we have this craving for sensual pleasure or this craving for sensual desire, right? We want to see things that are pleasant. We want to smell things that are pleasant. We want to taste food that's pleasant. We want to hear things that are pleasant. We want things on our body, you know, that are pleasant. We want things in the mind. You know, we have these central, these senses. We have these five senses. And this craving, this longing, this strong eagerness is for pleasure of the senses. So if you do the second one, which is pursue the enjoyment, now you're in a situation where the mind's craving the enjoyment and now that's going to lead to discontentness because you can't hold on to that enjoyment permanently because it's based on a condition of pleasing these five senses. So that's where an enlightened mind will have eliminated all craving and that fourth stage of enlightenment, you even get to the point where you eliminate eventually sexual contact. And not everybody's at that place right now. You may never be at that place where you decide to eliminate that. And that's okay because you can actually attain the first two stages of enlightenment and still maintain sexual contact. But ultimately, if somebody progresses and they get later in life and they're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm really enjoying this fairly content mind. But even in those first three stages of enlightenment, there's still going to be some 
certain amount of discontentedness. But to get all the way to the highest stage of enlightenment, we have to even do things like eliminate sexual craving. But that's really, for some people, that's all the way at the end of the path. For other people, they may be like, I can get rid of sex right now, like no big deal, like it's not a big thing for me. It just depends on what the mind is craving for enjoyment through these five senses. So as things come up, your friend calls you up and is like, hey, I'd like to come visit you next month. Oh, okay, sounds good. Or whatever you say, right? Like, oh, I'm looking forward to seeing you. That'd be great. Or however you handle that conversation. But the mind doesn't have this longing like, oh, when are they coming? Oh, two more weeks. Oh, 10 more days. Oh, five more days. Oh, I can't wait till they come. Oh, and now they come. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. And now when they're here, you just want to spend every single moment with them because the craving and the craving and the craving. And that's what leads to discontentedness. If you've ever gone somewhere, if you've ever been with somebody, we have the words where we say we feel smothered, right? Somebody's smothering us or we might be smothering somebody else. And what this is, is this is craving to be together and it doesn't feel good. It feels kind of icky and we don't like it when somebody kind of smothers us and is kind of all over us. But what that is, is that's the mind craving contact, craving to be around another person and it doesn't feel comfortable and it's gonna lead to a discontent mind. So you can't crave enjoyment, you can't pursue enjoyment I mean, if you are right now, that's okay. Like I said, you haven't done anything wrong. These teachings aren't about necessarily what's right or wrong, but recognize that the more you crave, the more you desire, you have this longing and this strong eagerness for enjoyment, the more that you train the mind to do that, the more discontent it's going to be. You have to train the mind to know that, okay, there's gonna be things that are come up that I'll enjoy, and there'll be things that'll come up that I just need to do it because it's just part of life and I'll just do it. And that's impermanent. Everything is impermanent. So if you have that longing, you have that strong eagerness for enjoyment, the mind's going to be discontent. But if you just allow things to come into your life, you enjoy it for that moment and then it's over and you just put it to the side, then you actually have more enjoyment because you enjoy that moment with your friend for two weeks but then when they're gone you enjoy that too because now you're alone and you have some alone time so it's training the mind to be peaceful calm serene and content with joy in every and all situations any situation that you're in the mind can maintain this mental state of peaceful calm serene and content with joy which is the enlightened mind but it takes training to get there and recognizing that, recognizing that the craving and desire, attachment, this longing, the strong eagerness is what's producing the discontent mind, then that should be the motivation to say, okay, I need to practice this breathing mindfulness meditation each day. I need to practice generosity. I need to eliminate this mind that keeps craving and craving and craving. And this is why I, I shared with you before that sometimes I look at the mind as like this third entity and I'm training this mind. It's like training a dog to sit, to lay, to eat, to drink. It's like training this mind rather than like I'm training myself because we know that there is no self, but I'm training this kind of like third entity 
And it's like, hey, you want to be with other people? You're craving to be with people. You're lonely. You're bored. You're not comfortable being alone. And you're trying to go be with your friends. Okay, well, since that's what you want, I'm going to do just the opposite and train it to be alone and train it to be calm and content and peaceful and joyful while it's alone. So there were certain periods of time in my life where when I was training my mind really closely that the mind had this craving and longing to be with other people and it was becoming lonely and bored. And rather than making the decision to call up a friend or go outside and find people to spend time with, I was like, oh, okay, you're discontent being alone. Well, I'm going to make you be alone until you're calm and peaceful and content and joyful alone. And then in some situations where I was craving to be alone and I didn't want to be around people, I did just the opposite because my mind was craving to be alone and block out all these people from my life. I was like, okay, you want to be alone? I'm going to do just the opposite. I'm going to go be with some people and train you to be calm and peaceful, content with people. So sometimes we have to do just the opposite of what the mind really wants, what it's desiring, what it's craving, what it has this longing and strong eagerness for. Sometimes by doing just the opposite, it can train the mind to be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy in that situation. And this is where I talk about meditation is a big part of your practice and it's a very significant part of your practice but in reality it's like a 10 or 15 percent of what you really need to do to train the mind because it's in these situations where like i just described where the mind's longing to be with people but you're like no 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 you're going to be alone or it really wants to be alone and you're like no 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 you're going to go be with people these kind of decisions of applying right effort and applying the effort to put the mind in situations where it's required to be peaceful, calm, serene, content with joy. This type of training is highly beneficial for the mind. The meditation is kind of like this steady, consistent practice that you do each day for once a day, twice a day, three times a day, or what have you. But there's all these other things that you need to do outside of meditation. And that's where right mindfulness comes in, is having awareness of mind. And if you're aware of the mind and it's 1 p.m., 2 p.m., and you're really craving to be around people and you have that mindfulness and awareness that the mind is discontent because it wants to be around people, you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to be by myself. I'm going to go for a walk in the park by myself. And these types of decisions will have enormous results and enormous benefits for you in your practice. The meditation is important. It's a daily consistent thing that we're doing to train the mind, but there's other ways to train the mind too. And this is where your discipline comes in because there's no one sitting there with you every single day telling you, okay, time to meditate, Bill. Okay, James, you got to meditate now, you know, okay, Dennis, you know, you got to meditate. Nobody's doing that for you. you. You have to have the discipline and the commitment and the dedication yourself, not only to actually meditate, but when these feelings of loneliness arise, have right mindfulness, awareness of mind, like, ah, the mind's craving to be with people. That's why I feel so lonely. 
Ah, I see what you're doing, silly mine. Okay, I'm gonna fix you. I'm gonna make you stay at home, or I'm gonna have you go to the park, or I'm gonna have you go on a walk in the woods and be alone because you're craving to be with other people so much. So these type of things can be very beneficial for the mind. Thanks, Dave. That was really helpful. Yes, whenever there's discontentedness, it's an opportunity to see what's going on, to see what the attachment is. I remember you telling me mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. wherever there's discontentedness, there's attachment. And this is all about coming to really be mindful of that, exactly what is giving rise to it. Yeah, one of the things that we do, you know, when we're unenlightened or we're unaware of these teachings, as soon as anger arises, we look for somebody else to blame or we blame the situation, right? We look for somebody else to blame. Or as soon as the mind becomes sad, we blame somebody else or frustrated or lonely. I'm lonely because my boyfriend won't come to spend time with me or my girlfriend won't come spend time with me. It's his fault because he said he was gonna come at 10 o'clock and he didn't come. He went to work instead. No, what the problem is is the mind is craving permanence what happened is your boyfriend or your girlfriend experienced impermanence. They thought they were coming at 10, but their boss called them up and said they have an urgent project and they have to go take care of that urgent project. But what happens is the mind starts diluting itself and it's like, oh, he doesn't love me. He said he was coming at 10. He's not coming. He loves his job more than me. And now I'm lonely. Now I'm sad. And the mind just kind of starts unwinding, you know, itself and just kind of getting sad and lonely rather than just be like, okay, it's impermanent. Yeah. He needed to go to work. So I'll see him another day. It'll work out. Right. So what happens is when the mind becomes discontent, we typically in the unenlightened state and especially before ever knowing anything about these teachings, we start looking for something to blame, either a situation or a person or something else. You know, I'm angry because of this or I'm frustrated because of that. But when you start realizing the Four Noble Truths and you understand how much truth is behind the Four Noble Truths that you're causing it yourself, when the mind becomes discontent, frustrated, sad, lonely, bored, whatever it is, what you really should do is you should look inward and you should say, what attachment is causing this? What craving is causing this? What desire, what longing, what strong eagerness do I have right now that's causing the mind to be sad, that's causing it to be lonely or bored or frustrated? Because when you can figure that out, then you can eliminate it. You can be like, ah, the mind's craving to be with my friend who just left two days ago and I got attached to them being here for the last two weeks and now I feel sad because I don't have them to spend time with. Ah, I'm attached to my friend and all those pleasant feelings that we had together. Ah, silly mind. Now let's fix this. Let's work on this. So one of the key realizations in this practice is in the Four Noble Truths, when you accept responsibility for the discontent mind and you realize that you're causing it 100%, and again, you're not a bad person, you haven't done anything wrong, you don't need to feel guilty or shameful because everybody's born with this same mind, this same craving, the same 
longing and mental attachments, this, this strong eagerness. So you don't have to feel guilty or shameful or you've done anything wrong, but just recognize that this is the condition of the mind. This is what's causing the discontentedness. So now you understand the problem. So now the solution is breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. And if you can recognize it like that, then sometimes you can just laugh at yourself when you start feeling sad or you start feeling lonely or bored. You just kind of laugh and like, ah, look at that silly craving. Here it comes again. Let's, let's fix that. So that's where a regular consistent meditation practice comes in. And all of these other teachings will help guide you to eliminating that craving so you can get to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. Eliminating craving, absolutely important. Great, yeah, thanks a lot, David. So we've got a few questions. I suggest we go to Julie first. So Julie was asking about whether writing a journal or a diary can be seen as an attachment. So this is where everything that you do, it could be an attachment and it may not be. Just writing a journal itself isn't necessarily an attachment. Or like some people think just having a girlfriend or a boyfriend is an attachment or just having a son is an attachment or just having a phone is an attachment. It's not about writing the journal that makes it an attachment or not. It's how the mind relates to it. So let me give you an example so that you can determine whether writing in your journal is an attachment or not. A couple of questions to ask yourself, Julie. Do you sit around during the day thinking about, oh, I got to write in my journal. I got to write in my journal. I got to write in my journal. If you are, then yeah, that's an attachment. That's a craving. If you have this plan to write in your journal at nighttime and you are falling asleep and you realize you didn't write in your journal, does the mind say, oh my God, I got to write in my journal. Where's it at? Oh my God, I forgot. And you jump up and you run to your journal and want to write in it then yeah, that's a craving, that's an attachment because the mind becomes discontent when it's not writing in the journal. So during the day, if you're craving writing in the journal all day long and you have this longing and this strong eagerness for it, then yeah, it's an attachment, it's a craving. Or if like you're going to sleep and you bolt up out of the bed because you feel like your mind can't be peaceful, it can't be content unless you write in the journal, that's an attachment. But if you just write in the journal and it's something that you normally do, and if you do it, you feel fine and you feel content. And if you don't do it, you're okay with that also. So we can't pick just one thing and say, if you write in the journal, it's an attachment because it's not like that. Because writing in the journal is just an activity. It's about how the mind relates to it. If the mind has this longing and this strong eagerness, it's a craving, it's a desire, it's an attachment. But if the mind can be just as calm, peaceful, and content, if it does write in the journal or it doesn't write in the journal, then it's not an attachment for you. But for somebody else, it could be. So it's not a matter of just having a certain possession or having a certain activity or having a certain relationship that makes it, whether it's an attachment or not, it's how the mind relates to it. Does it have this longing, this strong eagerness for permanence, right? Sometimes when people are writing in journals, they 
do it the same day, the same time, you know, every day it's the same time. And then when they don't do it, they feel guilty or they feel shameful or they feel sad. If the mind's becoming discontent around this activity of the journal, then you know it's an attachment. Does that make sense, Julie? Yeah. Okay, good. So we have a couple of questions that related to when you were talking about challenging ourselves. Uh, Amina asks specifically about meditation. So should we seek to meditate in challenging environments? So for example, noisy environments. Yes, absolutely. So if you're just starting out your practice and you're just getting started, I suggest you kind of pick a place where the mind's comfortable. So if it's at home or in your room, or if you have a special place in your house where you want to kind of set up, you should start kind of in like one spot because the mind craves permanence. So give it that to get started and get your meditation practice established and get it rooted. So maybe it's in your room or a special room in your house or a little corner in your house somewhere. Just pick one spot, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, whatever it is, get to the point where you're feeling like, wow, like this is a regular daily consistent practice. I'm doing this regularly. I see the benefits. The mind's becoming more and more content, more and more peaceful. I'm observing the benefits of this meditation practice. And what's going to happen is over that period of four weeks, six weeks, or however long you decide to do it, the mind's going to get attached to this particular space, this house, this room, this cushion, a certain lighting, a certain sound. The mind's going to get attached to this because it hasn't eliminated craving yet because you're just starting off your practice. So once you get your meditation practice established, and I'm kind of giving you like a four to six week time frame, but everybody's a little bit different. You have to figure out what's right for you. But at some point, you're going to want to start moving the mind into different environments. And you're going to want to try to create the ability to meditate anywhere and everywhere. So maybe if you started in your room in your house and over four to six weeks, you get comfortable with that. Now change to another room, your living room, your dining room, somewhere else in the house. But it's only like a quarter step removed from your room. Or maybe it's outside, right? You go outside on your, on your deck if you have a nice yard or something and you can meditate out there. And now when you do in your room and in your living room or in your room and on the balcony outside and that becomes normal and you're getting benefit in both of those places and you can see the mind feels more peaceful, calm, serene and content after your meditation. Now go to maybe a third place, maybe go to a friend's house or to a park or to a temple. So move the mind around but kind of establish it first, establish your meditation practice in one spot first, but then slowly, gradually introduce other environments, whether it's outside, a park, a friend's house, a temple, or like Amina was saying, like a place that has sound, right? Um, you can sometimes do like impromptu meditation, like sometimes, I've seen people here in Thailand, like they have boats that go up and down the river for transportation and everybody's on the boat and they have like the engine compartment, which has a big flat platform on top of the engine and it's vibrating. 
which gives the sensation of the, the skin and it has the sound and has a little bit of smell too. I've seen people sit on top of those engine compartments and actually meditate on top of the engine compartment as a way to challenge the mind. And maybe the meditation went horrible and it was like really difficult for them to do it. But regardless, they challenged their mind. But if they have a daily consistent meditation practice that's kind of rooted at home, they're consistently training the mind in a consistent space. But then they're taking opportunities like the boat ride, like at a park, or they just happen to be at a friend's house and like, hey, let me try to meditate at my friend's house. What the heck? Nothing to lose. You're not gonna, you're not gonna mess anything up by trying it. So by introducing these different variables, whether it's sound or smell or sensation like vibration or just different lighting, something with the eyes, just a different lighting, all of these things can challenge the mind but I don't suggest you do that until after you already have kind of a consistent practice developed. All right, so it appears we have no more questions. I think the other questions uh, have already been answered, so we're good. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and do some meditation together then? Let's do breathing mindfulness meditation. So what we're gonna do is there's essentially four different positions for meditation. When you're first learning, you usually learn in seated meditation and you can sit on the floor or you can sit in a chair, up to you. Oftentimes, traditionally, it's taught to sit on the floor, but not everybody's body is trained to sit on the floor. Here in Asia, you know, we have couches in our house, but everybody pretty much sits on the floor uh, because everybody's comfortable sitting on the floor. But in the Western culture, sitting in a chair is normal. So if you wanna sit in a chair or on the floor, you can. If you're gonna sit on the floor, I suggest that you don't cross your legs too tightly, that you keep them a little bit loose to allow the circulation to flow. Because when you're meditating, if you ever feel any pain, you want to change positions. You don't want to sit in a position where the hip just feels pain, 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 pain. So if you are gonna sit on the floor, typically getting your rear up in the air and having your legs kinda go down on a downward angle will keep your hips and your knees in a more comfortable position. If you're gonna sit in a chair, just sit in a normal chair with your feet either flat on the floor or you can cross them or however you like. Remember, everything is impermanent, so this guidance that I'm giving you are some suggestions and you can try to figure out what's working best for you. So if something that I'm sharing works for you, use it, but if it's not working, let me know and I can help you to get comfortable because the goal is to help you find a comfortable position to meditate. The goal isn't for everyone to do it exactly the same way that David does it because that would be permanence and it's impossible for everybody to do it exactly the same because all of our bodies are different. So if you're in a chair, just sit normal with your lower body comfortable with your feet either flat on the floor or crossed or whatever makes sense for you. With the upper body, you don't want it to be slouched because the mind will have a tendency to kind of disengage, but you don't want it to be real rigid either and real stiff. You want it to kind of be in the middle where you're supporting your upper body with your own muscles. So that keeps the mind active. It keeps it attentive because that's what we need during meditation. 
if you sat back in your chair and you were like really luxurious and comfortable, the mind's going to have a tendency to turn off. It's going to become disengaged, unattentive, and therefore we're not going to be able to train it. So if you're sitting in a chair or even if you're sitting on the floor close to a wall or something like that, try to use your own muscles in order to support your upper body. That's going to keep the mind attentive and alert so that we can actually train it during meditation. Then the hands and the arms, you want to place those in your lap. Typically, what Gautama Buddha would do is he put his right hand on top of his left hand with his thumbs together, and then he would put the back of his palms in his lap. And if this feels comfortable for you, you can do it this way. But if for some reason it doesn't feel comfortable, some other options you might choose is just putting your hands palm down on your lap or palm down on your knees. You can put your hands pretty much anywhere. You can put them on the armrest of your chair if you'd like. The whole idea is, is that we're training the mind. So we want the body to be comfortable, but not luxurious. Because the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. And in order to get to the boss, we have to go through the employee. So by making the employee comfortable, but not luxurious, by keeping the employee active, we can actually get to the boss. If the employee is just lazy, luxurious, the employee, the body doesn't want to take us to the boss. But if we keep the employee active and engaged, now the employee, the body will take us to the boss so that we can train the boss, the mind. So the lower body, the upper body, and the hands and arms should just be comfortable, but not luxurious. So this will keep the mind to be active and engaged. What I do in order to start meditation is I do some chanting. So I'll do some chanting to kind of ease us into meditation. But then what I'll do is once we're in meditation, I'll give you some guidance to help you get started and help you understand what to do with the mind once you're in meditation. And then probably after about three minutes or so, I will kind of just stop talking because I don't want to train your mind where for the entire meditation period, I'm just constantly talking and you're attaching to my voice and you're training the mind to only meditate when you hear me talking. So guided meditation to get started is, is good, but what I would like to do is train you that you can actually meditate on your own without guidance. So what I usually do as a kind of a middle way is I give you some guidance up front for about three minutes or so, and then I just kind of leave you on your own to actually meditate during the session by yourself. But I will have given you some guidance ahead of time in order to help you ease into meditation. Once we meditate for a period of time, however amount of time that is, once we come out of meditation, then I'll do some more chanting in order to come out of meditation. And then based on what your meditation experience was like, if you have any questions at that point, we can open up for more questions. So the chanting is, is just to kind of bring awareness to my mind, to bring awareness to my breath, ease the mind, kind of coax it into meditation, helping you get deeper. And then I'll give you some guidance. I'll leave you on your own to actually do the work, to actually meditate. And then I'll do some chanting to bring us back out of meditation. Okay. 
So if you've learned these chants, you're welcome to do these. I teach this about every three weeks or so. So some of you guys know this chanting. You're welcome to do this on your own and kind of follow along with the chanting. So go ahead and make your lower body comfortable. Get your upper body in the middle where it's engaging the muscles to keep the attentiveness of the mind and place your hands and arms in your lap. Or if you're gonna do chanting, place them with the palms together at your sternum and we'll do chanting together. Just focus on the breath at this point. Okay, just focus on the breath and then I'll give you some guidance once we get into meditation. Arahang Samma Samhoto Mahakawa Potang Mahakawanang Apiwati Ami Sawakato Mahakawata Tamo Tamang Namasami Sopatipano Mahakawato Sawakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmodhasabhakavato Harahato Samasamputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Harahato Samasamputasa Napmodhasabhakavato Harahato Samasamputasa Itipisomhakava Harahang Samasamhoto we cha charanang sam huno sakato roka vito anu tero purisa tamasati satatava manusanang Puto Pakavati Okay, with your eyes closed, just take some nice deep breaths in through the nose and out through the nose. Just establish a nice, steady, consistent breath. Breathing in and out. 
Don't try to control the breath. Don't try to force it. Just establish a nice, steady, consistent breath in through the nose and out through the nose. The breath is the present moment. So you want to bring the mind's awareness to the breath. Fixate the mind on the breath. Notice, is the breath short? Is it long? Don't necessarily try to control the breath, but just bring the mind's awareness to the breath. Breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. I'm going to let you focus on the breath for just a little bit, and then I'll come back with some more guidance. So just focus, breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Okay, now that you're breathing in through the nose and out through the nose, you've established your natural breath. You're fixating the mind on the breath, which is the present moment. As you sit in meditation, the mind may want to go to the past. As it does, just cut off those thoughts and bring the mind to the breath. Just let those thoughts go. Don't feel guilty or shameful if the mind's dragged you into the past. Just when you notice it, just cut it off and bring the mind to the breath. Same thing, if the mind wants to go to the future, if it wants to drag you into the future, with anticipation. Don't feel guilty or shameful. Just notice that the mind is not in the present moment. So cut off those thoughts, let them go, and focus the mind on the breath. If there's certain thoughts or ideas or perceptions that come to mind, just let them go. Cut them off and bring the mind to the breath. Focus it on the present moment. Train the mind to only reside in the present moment.
and recognize that that's going to take gradual training. You can't get it in just one or ten or even a hundred sessions. It's going to take time. So anytime you see the mind moving to somewhere else, just cut it off, let it go, and bring the mind to the breath. Recognize that your thoughts are impermanent. They're not permanent. Recognize that the sounds are impermanent. If you have any sensation on the body, it's impermanent. Just let it go. It's going to arise and then it's going to cease to exist but maintain the focus on the breath, the present moment. And wherever you see the mind's not doing that, just cut it off, let it go, and bring the mind to the breath. So I'm gonna leave you on your own to do this work, to train the mind, to focus on the breath. You have nowhere to go. You have nothing to do. No one needs you right now. This is your time to train the mind that everything is impermanent.
So just start to kind of bring yourself out of meditation. Just kind of loosen up your neck a bit. Move it side to side if you need to. Kind of wipe off your face. Kind of clear out your eyes. Just kind of bring your mind back to here. (laughs) Right here. (laughs) All right. So, how'd that go for you guys? What questions do you have? What were your experiences like? What kind of thoughts would you like to share? What did you notice? I'd like to ask something, David. We all benefit from this very straightforward style of breathing mindfulness meditation. I think it's really helpful to keep the instructions simple. And I find your instruction to just cut it off very useful it's really about i suppose eliminating the unwholesome states that have arisen and also reducing the habit of them coming back Uh, one thing i've sort of heard from other meditations is 
like counting the breath or using a mantra. Uh, I was wondering if there's ever a case for that. Would you ever advise counting the breath or saying Udo, for example? Yeah, so you'll see there's a lot of different techniques that people will employ. I don't use any of those. Like some people will count the breath. Some people will say pu do, pu do. Some people will label. If they see a thought come up, they will label it. They might even say thinking, thinking, you know, something like this. Here's the reason why I don't do this. The whole goal is to teach the mind to be in the present moment unattached to anything else without this longing or this strong eagerness essentially to accomplish what the buddha called single-mindedness or singleness of mind essentially right here right now just singleness of mind stable calm peaceful content as the mind goes to the past and it's having thoughts of the past the goal is to cut that off and bring the mind to the breath. If the mind goes to the past and I label it, all I've done is replace this thought of the past with something new, with a label. Or if the mind goes to the future and I label it, it's just replacing that thought with something else. So it's not any better. Or if my mind is the mind's having lots of thoughts and I'm counting the breaths, one, two, three, or if I'm going pu, to, pu, to, I'm just replacing all of those erroneous thoughts, all that chatter, just replacing it with something else. So we haven't improved the condition of the mind. The goal is to get to stillness, to get to singleness of mind or single-mindedness. And the way to do that is just train the mind to cut it off and bring it to the breath and recognize that if you're just starting your practice or even if you've been doing this for three months or six months or what have you, you don't have that singleness of mind yet. Yeah, there's still some chatter. Yeah, the mind still wants to go to the past. It still wants to go to the future. It still has these thoughts. But if we just replace these things with counting, with labels, with puto, it's not improving the condition of the mind. You're just replacing which the mind is already producing. The mind's already producing these thoughts of the past. It's already producing these thoughts of the future, these thoughts, ideas, perceptions. We're just producing something else, which is the counting, the labeling, or the puto. We're just replacing it with something else. What we want to get to is where we can cut off the thought and just bring the mind to the breath. And it trains the mind to let go. And it's beneficial because then you can eliminate that longing and that strong eagerness that the mind has. And then where it becomes beneficial in daily life is you're out and about, you're driving your car, someone cuts you off. Okay, they cut me off. No big deal. Okay, they're in front of me. Done. Just keep driving. Whereas if the mind is counting in meditation, if it's labeling, if it's puto, 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 then the mind doesn't have that tendency to just let it go. Someone cuts me off, okay, let it go. No reason to get angry, no reason to get frustrated, no reason to, you know, be laying on the horn, no reason to be cussing them, okay, whatever. I'm safe, they're now in front of me, 
my car is safe, let me give them some more distance, let them go. Or you're in a situation where you go to the bank or you go to a restaurant and somebody's disrespectful, they're, they're having the worst day of their life, they're hostile to you. You recognize it, okay, just let it go. So if you train the mind in this way in meditation where anytime there's a past thought, a future thought, thoughts, ideas, or perceptions, and you just train the mind, just let it go, let it go, let it go, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off, bring the mind to the breath. So when all these various things happen to you in life, you can just cut it off. You're not counting, you're not labeling, you're not puto, puto, you just cut it off. So if you train your mind this way in meditation, then in daily life, you'll be able to do exactly the same thing over time. It'll take time to train the mind to that point, but over time, you just cut it off. And this is part of right effort. So if you have right mindfulness, if you have awareness of mind, and you're aware that this person speaking hostile to you, there's this frustration that's arising rather than allowing it to go into your speech and your actions where now you start creating all this unwholesome gamma. When you feel that frustration arise, you just cut it off and you just say nothing. And when you do that enough times over multiple situations, you'll get to the point where you won't even feel the frustration. When someone's talking hostile to you or someone cuts you off in traffic, you won't even feel the rise of frustration, irritation, or annoyance. But now you're kind of in that middle zone where before you knew the Buddhist teachings, maybe any little thing might have made you irritated or frustrated where that's not where we want to stay. Where we want to go is to this enlightened mind where no matter what happens, we don't even feel a rise of anger or frustration. But now because your mind's still under training and it hasn't quite reached to that enlightened mind yet, there's going to be the arising of frustration. There's going to be the arising of irritation or annoyance. But what you have to do is cut it off before it comes to the speech and the actions so it doesn't cause unwholesome gamma. And you can cut it off. And when you do that enough times over a long period of time, eventually you get to the point because you've trained it so well, you can control the mind so well that now over time, you don't even feel the rise of frustration and anger at all. doesn't matter what happens. You're just able to stay in the present moment, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This is what the Buddha called an unshakable mind. That no matter what happens, the mind is unshakable. Now, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, your mind's maybe getting shaken up. Oh, man, why did he cut me off? He almost hit my car, man. Oh, come on. Right? The mind's shaken up. Whereas if you could get to the point where those things don't shake you up, then your mind becomes more and more unshakable. And that's someone whose mind is being trained closer to enlightenment because they've trained their mind so well in meditation. Now they can control the mind when they're outside of meditation in daily life. Sounds like then if we are simply cutting off thoughts, we're really emphasizing the training of the mind. Whereas if we're introducing these labels and things, they can actually get in the way. Uh, whilst mm -hmm. they may sort of label something so that we can see it clearly and see it come and go, really the best way to see something clearly is to train the mind. Yes. So what you're saying is this is 
really the way to see things clearly is cut off these thoughts. This is how we do it. Let me add one more yeah. thing there. So, you know, when I was talking about how I view the mind as like this third entity, I also do the same thing with like frustration and irritation and annoyance when I was having that is look at that is that's not me, right? If you understand non-self, then you understand that that frustration, that's not me. That's not who I am or this annoyance, this irritation. It's not me. So when you train the mind in meditation to cut off all these thoughts, when you're in daily life and you feel a little bit of frustration, if you know that's not you, that's not who you are, it's just a thought, it's just a feeling of frustration, then you can kind of like, ha, frustration, get out of here. I'm not going to get frustrated just because somebody cut me off. No way. Or I'm not going to get frustrated just because someone looked at me strange. Or I'm not going to get frustrated just because somebody's talking hostile. That's their life. So if you start looking at these things that this is not you, these feelings that you're having, these thoughts that you're having, that's not you. That's not who you are. These are just thoughts of frustration, feelings of irritation, feelings of annoyance, feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. That's not you. That's not who you are because there is no you, right? Which goes into non-self, which uh, if you haven't learned non-self yet, that's okay. But if you recognize that these thoughts and these feelings, these perceptions are not you, then you can treat them almost like a third entity. And what I teach my son is I teach him to kick it out. When he feels a craving coming up, he just kicks it out. That's not me, that frustration is not me. So you can start looking at these things as like a third entity. So by recognizing that that's not you, that's not who you are, those are just thoughts and feelings, then you can maybe more readily just let them go and kick them out when you feel them start to arise. Okay, thanks for that. So my follow-up, and then we also have three questions. So I suggest we go to Carol, Connie, and then Nikki on Facebook. Uh, my question is, you mentioned this singleness of mind. Is that... Uh, just a byproduct of clearing the mind or does it have benefits of its own or both? Uh, both. Through practicing meditation and bringing the mind to the breath, you're training the mind to establish this singleness of mind, this single-mindedness, because you're focusing on the present moment and the mind becomes single-minded where you're just focusing on one thing at a time. This is where you build concentration and you build clarity of mind because if you're in a conversation with somebody and the mind's thinking about the past or it's thinking about the future, it's having all these thoughts, it's not easy to just stay in the conversation and have a really good, wholesome conversation because the mind's kind of scattered and chattery and all over the place. So through meditation, you're training the mind to have this single-mindedness or singleness of mind, this concentration, this clarity, this focus. So that's part of the training. It's a byproduct. But then it becomes beneficial in daily life because now with the understanding of the natural law of gamma, which is essentially the Eightfold Path, understanding the Eightfold Path really well, with that singleness of mind, now you're just making one decision at a time. And then when we're just making one decision at a time, we can more readily make very good, wholesome decisions in our life that leads to wholesome outcomes. Whereas if I'm trying to have a conversation with you, but the mind's chattery, it's all over the place, it's having all this erroneous thoughts, 
I know like in other times in my life, like I could just be talking to someone and then just I blurt something out. Like it wasn't really a good thought. It wasn't really a wholesome thought. It wasn't really something that was focused on the conversation. It was just kind of an erroneous thing that kind of like led to something not good, not good. So if you train the mind in this way to develop singleness of mind or single mindedness, then that's what you're training the mind to acquire. But then in daily life, you're able to make very good, wholesome decisions about every single aspect of your life. Unfortunately, what we've been taught, especially in Western culture, is we've been taught multitasking. And we've been led to believe that if you do three, four, five, six things at a time, that this is more desirable. This is more beneficial. This is going to make you more productive. But what you're going to realize the more you practice these is the mind's not doing three, four, five, six things at a time. It's impossible for the mind to do those things. We think and we trick the mind to think we're doing six things at one time, but essentially what you're doing is you're, you're talking on the phone, you're watching TV, you're eating a sandwich, but I'm talking on the phone for a couple of seconds, I'm watching TV for a couple of seconds, I'm eating a sandwich for a couple of seconds. When I get off the phone, my friend didn't really feel like I was really engaged in the conversation, and I don't remember anything that we really talked about. I don't remember anything that was on the, the TV show and I didn't enjoy the sandwich and I didn't really feel full afterwards because what the mind's doing is in milliseconds, it's switching from phone, TV, sandwich, 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 TV, 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 phone, 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 TV, sandwich. It's just doing one thing at a time, but we lead ourselves to believe that we're actually doing multiple things at one time. But in reality, the mind's only doing one thing at a time. It's just putting them so close together that it tricks the mind to think that it's doing more than one thing, but we're not doing any of those things well. We're, we may be involved in three different activities, but we're not doing any of those activities really well. So this singleness of mind allows you to focus on just one thing at a time and just do it really, really well and have good, wholesome results. And that situation is gonna produce better results because let's just say I talk on the phone, I'm watching TV and I'm eating a sandwich. Again, when I'm done with all of that, I really didn't do any of that stuff well. And I don't have to go spend time to clean up this problem anyway, or this leads to other problems, right? So it's better to just do one thing at a time, recognize that the mind can only do one thing at a time. It's impossible for it to do otherwise and just always train the mind to do one thing at a time. So meditation is one way that we do that by focusing on the breath. But again, your mind training is beyond meditation. It's not just in meditation. It's outside of meditation too. So this is when the Buddha said, when you're walking, know that you're walking. When you're eating, know that you're eating. When you're talking, know that you're talking. He even went as far as saying, when you're urinating, know that you're urinating. When you're defecating, know that you're defecating. Do just one thing at a time. And what you're gonna notice is if you train the mind this way, that it's the benefit's gonna be this singleness of mind, this clarity of mind, this focus, and that's going to be beneficial for you in all these different situations when things happen in your life, you just handle one thing at a time, at a time, at a time.
and life is much more easy that way and much more straightforward. Excellent. Thank you. So we'll go to Carol. Carol asks, is chanting before and after meditation a form of attachment? Um, no. The, so this is again back to like what Julie was asking about the journal. It's not about whether we chant or don't chant, or we have a phone or we don't have a phone, or we have a partner or don't have a partner, or we have a journal, we don't have a journal. It's how the mind relates to it. So if you chanted all the time, and then for some reason you couldn't chant, and then the mind becomes sad or frustrated or angry, that's how you know it's an attachment. It's about how the mind relates to it. So using this example of chanting, I would say probably 95% of the time I chant before and after I meditate, but not always. And for example, last year when I got in a motorbike accident, I cracked my rib and for about a week and a half, two weeks, I couldn't chant because I couldn't get enough air in my lungs and it was causing me pain. Well, if I was attached to chanting during that time, my mind would have been discontent because I can't chant because I don't have this chanting and the mind's craving permanence. So now the mind's attached to chanting. So it's not as easy as saying, Max, because you have headphones, you're attached to the headphones. Or because you do chanting, you're attached to the chanting. Or because you own a computer, you're attached to the computer. It's about how the mind relates to it. So if I have this computer and I left it at the temple, which I've done before on accident, and then when I realize, oh, I left my computer at the temple. Now, if the mind's like, oh, my God, who do I got to call? Oh, my goodness, my, my computer's going to be gone. There, you know, the mind's discontent because it's unstable. It's shakable. The mind's shaken up because of this attachment, this mental longing that I have for the computer this strong eagerness to keep it permanently. Whereas if I accidentally leave it at the temple and I'm like, huh, I left my computer at the temple. Hmm, how do I get this back? And you start processing how to get it back very peacefully, very calmly, very contently. Maybe I'll call a friend who's at the temple or maybe I'll just go tomorrow and check it out. And then if the computer's there, okay, I'm peaceful, calm, serene, and content. Or if it's not there, I'm still peaceful, calm, serene, and content. And I just realize, okay, it's impermanent, it's gone. Whereas if the mind becomes angry or sad or frustrated or irritated because you no longer have this computer or you no longer are able to chant, that's how you know it's an attachment. So it's not just whether you do a certain activity or you don't, or if you have a son or don't, or if you have a partner, you don't, or you have a phone, you can't say like, I have a phone, so that's an attachment. It's all about how the mind relates to that phone. Does it have this longing and this strong eagerness for permanence? For the phone, for the computer, for the boyfriend, for the girlfriend, for the mom, for the dad, these kinds of things. Okay, so Connie asks, if the body responds with a stress response, and there is no mind cue, but that actually means if there's no obvious way to label the experience, what would you suggest? So stress is another form of a discontent mind. Once you attain this enlightened mental state, you don't feel any stress at all. Stress is actually self-imposed. 
and it comes from attachment. It comes from craving. It comes from this desire, this longing and this strong eagerness for things in our life. And the mind's holding on. So it becomes stressed. So let's say I lose my job and now I'm unemployed and I'm not sure where my income's going to come from. Well, this is the mind craving the job, trying to hold on with the strong eagerness. It's craving this income and it wants a certain income. And that's why the mind becomes stressed and it feels this pressure. And again, remember, it's not about what's right or wrong here because of course, you need a job to sustain your life. So it's good to have a need and an interest and pursue a new job. That's important. You need that for your life. But what's happening is the mind is uncomfortable with this impermanence that you had a job and now you don't. And what the mind has to recognize is that's just part of impermanence. And there's going to be times where you have a job and there's going to be times where you don't. Um, and there's going to be times where you have a job that you really enjoy. And there's going to be times where you don't. You maybe don't enjoy your job as much. But the goal is, of course, to have a job that you feel good with. So this stress, it comes from the same problem as all the other discontentedness. It's from craving. It's from attachment. It's from desire. This mental longing, the strong eagerness. So the solution to stress is the Buddha's teachings, which is breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity. That's what's going to eliminate the craving because that's what's causing the discontent mind. So there are no quick fixes, right? Sometimes people think that meditation or something in the Buddha's teachings is like a quick fix. Like I'm feeling stress, so how do I fix that? Well, the way you fix it is you build up a practice of these teachings over several years and you do meditation over several years and eventually when you attain the enlightened mind, which is going to take several years, all the stress is going to be gone. But between now and then, you're going to experience stress. You're going to experience stress. There's no quick fix. And this is why like medications that people give for these kind of things, it's not going to fix it because the reason why the mind's feeling stress is because the attachment and there's no pill that you can take that's going to fix that. The, the pill is just changing the brain chemistry. But if you don't train the mind to eliminate craving and attachment, there's still going to be stress there. So it doesn't matter what pill you take. There's no meditation that you can do once or twice or 10 or 100 times that's going to immediately eliminate the stress. The only thing that's going to eliminate it is learning these teachings and gradually practicing them to gradually attain more and more of an enlightened mind, which is going to take several years. So, so this might be bad news to you that it's going to take several years, but I think it's actually good news because it's a permanent solution. That's the difference between other things that you've tried in your life in this is you might have tried medication, you might have tried different breathing techniques, you might have tried counseling or talk therapy or whatever, but you still have this stress because you haven't yet trained the mind to this enlightened mind state. Once you train the mind to enlightenment, it's permanent. Once you eliminate frustration, anger, 
boredom, loneliness, guilt, shame, distress, jealousy. Once you train the mind to eliminate this, it's going to be gone permanently. So while it's going to take you some time to get there, once you get to the final goal, it's permanent. You'll never experience any of those discontent feelings ever again, including stress. So Nikki on Facebook, on a related note, has said that she's noticing fewer distractions with every meditation. Yeah, Nikki's been training for about a month and a half, two months now. She came to see me with her son in Chiang Mai, and I got her started, and she's starting to do some training. So this is common, right? Like if you if you learn the teachings and you get help and you get support and you get guidance and you do what I'm sharing with you, you're going to notice the truth for yourself that this works. And that's essentially what Nikki's commenting on. And she's not the first person that I've ever trained that has shared that because what I'm sharing with you, I know it works because I know it through experience. So if you dedicate and commit yourself to learning these teachings and practicing them, they absolutely work. And this is why when people first start learning with me, I tell them, don't believe anything I say. Don't believe me because belief is not going to liberate the mind. There's nothing that's going to liberate your mind in terms of belief. But if you learn what I'm sharing with you in terms of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the Five Precepts, the Three Poisons, about gamma, about the 10 fetters, all of these different things, the meditations, and you start implementing this slowly and gradually in your life, you're going to be just like Nikki, that you're going to notice that the condition of the mind is getting better and better and better. And that's how you have the truth for yourself. You discover the truth and you gain more wisdom and you see that you have 100% ability to eliminate sadness, frustration, irritation, guilt, shame, boredom, loneliness, all this stuff. The reason why you can eliminate it is because you're the one who's causing it. It's because of your craving. It's because of your attachment, because of the mind's eagerness, this strong eagerness, this longing, because your mind's the one who's causing you to be sad. That's why you can eliminate it because you're causing the anger. You can eliminate it because you're causing the loneliness and the boredom. That's why you can eliminate it. Whereas if it's everyone else's fault, I'm angry because of them, then that's why people go around and try to train everyone else to do things my way. And that's only, that's not going to work for you because there's 7.5 billion people in the world. You can't train everyone to do things your way. It's not going to work. But what you can do is you can train just one mind. You can train your mind. And because you're causing the discontent mind, you can eliminate it. That's the beauty in the Buddhist teachings. And he brought these teachings to the world and said, hey, you can eliminate all this stuff because you're the one causing it. And when you accept responsibility for the frustration, the anger, the boredom, the loneliness and so forth and so on, when you take 100 percent responsibility for it and you see that without a doubt you're the one that's causing it, then it just becomes, all right, well, what's the solution? Let me start implementing the solution. And that's what Nikki and a lot of other people are doing that's training with me is they're working to eliminate the discontent mind through training the mind. Nikki also asked a really good question earlier about love and attachment. So Nikki's question is, 
how can people be in a committed relationship together and not be attached to each This is a good question. This is chapter 14 of the book, so we're going to be covering that in about three weeks, but let's just go into it a little bit for Nikki. So some people think that practicing non-attachment means not caring, but that's not true. That's not a real understanding of what non-attachment is. So understanding craving, desire, attachment is this longing, this strong eagerness to keep something permanently. That's what craving and attachment is. So if you're in a relationship, a life partner or a child or anybody who you're spending time with, if you have attachment, the relationship's going to become discontent. So if you have this longing or this strong eagerness for your children to do something and be a certain way, they're never going to meet your expectations 100%. It's impossible. They're never going to do everything you want. So the longer you want all those things and you expect all those things, you're going to be discontent. Or same thing with a life partner. If you have certain expectations or certain things you want from them, then your mind's going to be discontent because they're never going to fulfill all your expectations 100%. So what you have to do is you have to learn how to have relationships without this longing and this strong eagerness, this wanting, these expectations. Sure, you can have the interest to have a partner that's polite, that's kind, that's respectful, that's loyal to you. These are things that are good, wholesome qualities that that you're looking for in a partner. But if you have these expectations like, okay, if he doesn't say I love you and within a month, then I'm out of here. If he doesn't take me out this week on Friday because I really want to go out on Friday, then I, I know he doesn't love me. Or if he doesn't ask me to marry him in six months, then, you know. So if we add all these expectations, what happens is the relationship becomes very selfish and we just want things for ourselves, rather than just coexisting with someone peacefully and just saying, my only interest in this relationship is for the other person to be peaceful. That's my only interest. That's how you practice non-attachment in a relationship, is you just practice in a way that you're not trying to control another person. You're just letting them make their own choices. You're, you don't hold all these expectations out and expect them to meet all your expectations. You don't have all this wanting. Now, if their personal choices are going in a direction that you don't feel comfortable with and you don't want to be in this relationship anymore, then maybe you need to end the relationship. Maybe you've made the choice that you don't want a partner who becomes drunk regularly. You want a partner who is polite and kind and respectful. You would like a partner that's able to hold down a job and be responsible. These are good, wholesome qualities that you would like to have in a partner and when you pick your partner to begin with, you would like to make sure those qualities are there. And then, but if for some reason they become unemployed because everything's impermanent, rather than just being like, okay, I'm out of here, you're unemployed now. If you have care and you have compassion and you have love, true love, and you have kindness, you have active goodwill for this other person, and you would like to see them be peaceful, when they become unemployed, rather than you becoming frustrated and angry because of that, you can sit down 
you can talk, you can discuss the problem with them, and you can come up with a solution together to figure out how to make our life better together. So practicing non-attachment in a relationship is to not try to force other people to do things the way that you think that they should be done. Because if you're trying to force other people to do things your way, this is essentially being selfish. This is trying to control other people and it's never going to lead to anywhere good. You have to allow other people to make their own personal decisions. And it's easy to talk about right here. And maybe when I talk about it, it's like, ah, oh, that sounds really good. Yeah, I would like a relationship like that. So talking about it and understanding it intellectually is one thing, but actually implementing it in daily life is completely different. Because if the mind still has craving, even though you might understand what I just said on an intellectual level, when you're actually sitting at the restaurant or you're sitting at the movies or you're walking down the street, the mind's going to still have craving. It's still going to have longing. Even you understand on a certain level that that's going to lead to discontentness. You can't just snap your fingers and the mind immediately stops craving or the mind immediately starts practicing in a relationship with non-attachment. So it's going to take gradual learning to understand more and more about how to practice in a relationship with non-attachment. And that's why I devoted an entire chapter to it, chapter 14. And in about three weeks, we'll dive into that chapter a lot more. So you need to learn the teachings. You need to understand them. You need to apply them, see how they work. And then when there's things that aren't working for you, you need to ask questions, get help with from your teacher. That's why this is a it's a long term thing. It's a one year, two year, three year, you know, multiple year pursuit. It's a life practice, developing a life practice where you're constantly learning and practicing these teachings. And I can tell you that I feel that love in relationships is one of the most challenging things to overcome and learn successfully how to practice those and actually learn how to practice non-attachment. It takes a lot of time to do that. So this is an area where people tend to have a lot of discontentedness in relationships with children, with parents, with life partners. So that's another reason why I dedicated an entire chapter to it because it's one that we really need to study closely and get a lot of help with because it's not so easy. It takes a lot of training of the mind to be able to do that. So there's more to talk about here, Nikki, but hopefully this little bit gets you started. And when we get into chapter 14, we'll dive into it some more. And then over time, as you need more and more help, just keep asking questions based on what's happening for you. And I'll just continue to help you learn this more and more. And that's the beauty is once you figure out how to love without attachment and what true love really is, it's so beautiful. It's so wonderful to be able to have children, life partners, parents, siblings, friends, all of these people in your life and have relationships without attachment. It's it's a beautiful thing because you never argue. Can you imagine never arguing with your life partner? or never arguing with your child, never having frustration or irritation with your life partner, your child, never being sad, you know, 
that's just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And hopefully you can use that as motivation to keep learning and practicing these teachings so you can get to the point where every single relationship that you have is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You never have any arguments. Even if the other person wants to argue, you don't go there. You don't allow it to go there in your own mind. They might be arguing, they might be frustrated, but you're not. And so once you learn this, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Okay, we have one more question that just come in. So Pravin asks, during meditation, he sees lights on his forehead. Is this normal? Yeah, these kind of things happen. The mind produces a lot of different stimulation, right? The mind's a pretty complex thing. Some people not only have visual lights and things like this, some people have uh, sensations in the body. As you develop your meditation more and more, you might feel dizzy, you might feel lightheaded. Some people even will kind of hallucinate a little bit during meditation. These are all completely normal, but they're impermanent. They're not permanent. Some people even get headaches when they meditate. Headaches, lightheadedness, dizziness, lights, hallucinations. What this is, is as you're learning these teachings and you're practicing them more and more, as you're training the mind with meditation more and more and more, there's changes that are happening in the mind. And I haven't done any research on this, but I have a feeling there's probably some physical changes in the brain too, right? The mind isn't the brain, but there's definitely some kind of connection there. So the reason why people are feeling headaches, lightheadedness, dizziness, seeing lights, having hallucinations, all of these things is because there's kind of these changes that are happening in the mind. So when people start having this, it's not necessarily good or bad, but I actually see it as kind of a good thing that they're actually starting to happen because it means that the mind is starting to change, it's starting to evolve. But you have to understand that these things are impermanent. They need to be impermanent. So as you start experiencing lightheadedness, dizziness, headaches, visual sensations, physical sensations in the body, just recognize that these are all impermanent and just keep meditating every day. Keep your practice going and recognize that someday these things aren't going to be there anymore and your mind will become more and more stable. As you develop more and more singleness of mind, more and more clarity of mind, these things will be eliminated and the mind will become more and more stable, more and more rooted, more and more uh, content. Okay, that's all our questions, David. Thanks a lot. Okay, so let me just kind of wrap up with a couple of things here. First thing is, thank you for coming. Thank you for attending the class. I think that this has been very beneficial for a lot of people. So that's why I will keep doing these each Wednesday at nine o'clock and each Sunday at nine o'clock Thai time. So Wednesday is where we do breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation or chanting. And we focus on the actual practice of meditation where on Sunday at nine, we're focused on the teachings and going chapter by chapter in the book. So continue to keep coming each Wednesday and Sunday as you have time. And of course, you're going to miss some here and there. That's impermanence. But if you make kind of a dedicated commitment to coming regularly, you're going to notice that you're going to be learning and improving each time. So thank you for coming. Keep coming and keep learning. 
and uh, continue to, to dive into the book. Continue to build your meditation practice where every day you're meditating at least once a day. And if you can get twice a day or three times a day, that's wonderful as well. But stay committed to this gradual training of the mind. And if you accidentally skip a day, don't feel guilty. Don't beat yourself up. Just the next day, just recommit yourself and just make sure you're getting your meditation in so that you're slowly, gradually building up this practice of breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation as well. So just continue to chip away at it gradually, little by little by little. And then the last thing I would like to say for everyone out there who is starting to donate money and share offerings, I really appreciate that. I just want to share my appreciation and my gratitude because your donations really help me to help everyone else that I can use these resources to help other people through all the different ways that I, I help people. So I just want to say thank you guys for your donations and I really appreciate your gratitude and your generosity for sharing this with me. Um, so I will continue to share with you whether you donate money or you don't. I don't have any expectation of people making donations to me, but I just wanted to make sure I put some time here to thank the people that have done that. And whether you are able to do that or not, I'm still willing to teach you. And I spend just as much time with everybody as uh, you would like to have time. So if you would like to send me a private message and get help, or if you want to post a message into the Facebook group, if you want to have any questions answered, just post them into the Facebook group or send me a private message and I'll spend time to answer any questions that you have as you're studying and learning and practicing these teachings to get a more peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, this single-mindedness or singleness of mind. So thank you all so much. I really appreciate your time and have a really wonderful day and enjoy your time. We'll see you next time. Sawadikhap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.